1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Imagine that your life is spent in an environment of total physical sensation. That every one of your senses has been heightened to a level that a human being might only be described as ecstatic. Joseph E. Levine presents George C. Scott in a Mike Nichols film, The Day of the dolphin. His brain is as big as a man's. It processes information about two worlds, the world of water in which he is born and feeds and reproduces and dies, and the world of air in which he breathes. Is it possible that dolphins are as intelligent as we are? Well, that depends on your definition of intelligence. What about the experiments at the military? I don't know anything about the military. What about their speaking in English? I beg your pardon? First month, first year. Alpha speaking. In his own language, of course. I want to visit Jacob Terrell's Marine Biology Center. Second month, second year. Thirteen months to isolate the clicking patterns from the squeaks and the whistles and the grooms. The fact is, Dr. Terrell does not want visitors. Is he hiding something? Seventh month, second year. Ah. Our first phony. Ah. Terrell tell you not to talk to me? What? Did he tell you not to give me any information? Fourth year. Here comes our first morphine. Phoneme P plus phoneme A equal. You've had quite a day, haven't you? Pa. Pa? Pa. Why does Pa speak? Pa speak. Yes. Why Pa speak? He does it for me. Why does Pa speak to Pa? Pa, no, Pa. They're sneaking up on us. It looks like we're going to be forced to come out with the information first to keep this whole thing from turning into some kind of freak show. I want you to know that the equipment we borrowed is in fine shape. And it'll be returned to you very soon if nothing interferes with it. The dolphins. I would guess they're on that yacht. What are they going to do with them? That's the part we don't know. 
What we do know is that they've been working on this thing since you started teaching your friend Alpha to talk. How do we stop them? Unwittingly, he had trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. Can you find B? Stop B. The thing on B's back will hurt man. Far stop B now. George C. Scott in a Mike Nichols film, The Day of the Dolphin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am here as per usual with my good buddy, Mr. Sean Whalen. Hey, Sean. Good to be here. And we're glad to have you here because otherwise I'd be sitting here all alone. <laughs> So we we're a little off the track tonight or today. Uh, we are we decided I don't even remember exactly what the events were, but I was listening to something where they were talking about Mike Nichols, and they made mention of all of the great movies that he he was involved in. And uh, just to give you a quick uh, quick rundown of some of them, uh, he he directed Who Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. The Graduate, Catch-22, Carnal Knowledge, Silkwood, Working Girl, Postcards from the Edge, The Birdcage. Uh, he's got quite a resume. And this movie was mentioned as kind of a failure on this list. And I had a vague memory of it from when I was a kid. And I suggested, to, or I asked Sean, you know, would you be interested in doing it? And as has been the case with every single movie I've ever said that with, Sean said, sure, I'd like to do it. Uh, this is Day of the Dolphin from 1973, uh, starring uh, George George C. Scott. And it is written, it's, it's based on a novel, but the screenplay was written by Buck Henry, of all people. Uh, and I remember vaguely i only have very vague memories of this i remember it was in the movies and it came on tv and we kept seeing the commercial for it and seeing the commercial and seeing a talking dolphin when i was in the prime of my watching planet of the apes movies on tv uh i just remember seeing a talking animal and just feeling that connection to that and wanting to see this and i know i watched it when it was on you know, whatever the broadcast premiere was, which was probably sometime in 1974. Uh, but I have no recollection of what I thought of it. Uh, and, and other than the sound of the dolphin talking, I have really no memory of the movie whatsoever. Uh, so I watched it for this and Sean watched it for this. And then I watched it again for this. I don't know if you watched it once or more than once. Uh, and, and, and I have interesting thoughts about it, to be honest with you. I'm not sure exactly where I fall for my final rating. I have some thoughts on that, but I think we we need to talk this one out and then I'm going to see what I think. I could not be more in the same boat. So I watched this uh, for the first two times um, for the same reasons you did for the show. And what's always intriguing about movies like this. So this is from 73. I was two. Now the, my, how old I was is irrelevant. It's just more the fact that at that time frame I wouldn't have seen this. Um, it's, Year, it's not uncommon that years later I would have seen it. I did not know what this was uh, when you'd mentioned it, which is always intriguing for me. So I'm like, okay, we're going to do something 
different, something that I haven't seen before that I know little, next to nothing about. Um, that makes for a just a to me for a fun watch and a fun, fun conversation about it because I did not know the premise of the movie. Um, with Day of the Dolphin, I didn't know if it meant that it was a dolphin. I didn't know if it meant it was a ship. I didn't know, you know, it was George C. Scott. So what, where are we going with this? Uh, so it was interesting when I jumped in to I, I thought it was going to be one kind of movie, um, especially with what with the training, the dolphin and the fact that the dolphin could talk and all of that. And I'm like, oh, OK, so it's going to be like this sweet movie about all of that. And it takes a turn <laughs> and it becomes something very, very different. And I mean, that's good. It's going to be fun to talk about this one because it becomes a. It, you think it's one thing and it is not <laughs> at all halfway through. Absolutely. It's very, very dark. <laughs> but but it, it, at, at the heart of the movie, and I mean, you, this is the way we do this. You know, we have no, no form. We're free to, you know, whatever comes up as far as those. But at the heart of the movie, I think, is the relationship with the dolphin uh, and, and George C. Scott and, and his, his wife. Uh, who is portrayed by Trish Vanderveer. Uh, the two of them and the dolphin, Fa, which is short for Alpha, uh, and then they bring in a second dolphin, which is Beta, and they call it B, a, a female dolphin, so the two of them, you know, mate. Uh, and the the heart of the movie is the relationship between those characters, you know, primarily George C. Scott's uh, Dr. Jake Terrell and and Fa. Uh, and, you know, Fa, it, it becomes clear, you know, and through through exposition and through the story as it progresses, that Fa, it's difficult for him to maintain uh, English language for his brain to, to keep that as opposed to going to kind of whatever their natural way of communicating would be. But because he sees Dr. Terrell as kind of a father figure who he loves... Uh, he makes that effort and he continues to make that effort. And that was one of the things that when I watched this that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, you know, first of all, from the heart of the the relationship and how that builds in the movie, but also, uh, you know, one of the, uh, at one point when when it becomes public that these dolphins can speak, uh, somebody questions, well, you know, if if we set this dolphin free, is it going to go out and teach all the other dolphins how to speak English? And now we're going to have a bunch of, you know, talking dolphins in the world. And, excuse me, and the answer is quickly, no, that's not going to happen. If if we let him free, he's going to revert back to his normal way of communicating because that's easier for him. The only reason he does this is because of his relationship with me. Uh, so it isn't, you know, right off the bat, they squashed the Planet of the Apes theory of uh, dolphins learning to communicate and then banding together and taking over the world. Uh, you know, that, that, that silly premise is, is done away with intelligently uh and i like that aspect of it um it was interesting to me watching it from you know the second time because the first time you watch it and you sit back and if if the movie's doing a good job you kind of get lost in the movie and you're not really being a critic so to speak uh but then watching it the second time and seeing about the social commentary of the use of the dolphins uh as well as kind of the sci-fi aspect of it uh it brought a lot of thoughts to me of of uh you know, Jurassic Park and saying, you know, just because you can do this, does it mean you should do this? You know, that that's, you know, and it started making me think a lot more about it. And I, I've focused a lot in the last two years or so on this show on a lot of uh, 70s science fiction movies. And usually 
they are very dystopian in nature. And this one is very different from that because this is not dystopian at all. This is a regular world that we live in and just adding a science fiction element to it, which I thought was pretty cool. I understand the book is much more in the way of satire uh, than than the uh, movie, which is, you know kind of plays it straight, which is surprising with, once again, you know, with Buck Henry writing the uh, screenplay, I would have thought the satire would be much more heavy. I was shocked when I saw that he wrote the screenplay just because of the fact that it was so serious. And uh, actually, it made me more impressed with him because I do know him more for his comedy. So I'm like sitting there, I'm like, wow, he did a really good job at delivering this um, heartfelt story. Uh, one of the things that really stood out for me with this one was George C. Scott's portrayal because he comes off as very strong, very. Um, I don't want to sto- stoic's not necessarily the right word, but he's certainly not your touchy feely kind of guy. When you first see him on screen, his ability to bring emotion to a role, I think because of that always amazes me and always stands out. Um, I really felt his emotional connection. I felt some of his conundrums in this where he's, He's taking steps to do some things that are morally questionable at times, maybe, you know, where you consider and go, is this ethical? Is this the right way you should be going about this? And I loved that some of that struggle was in your face. Some of it was in the acting and the portrayal and sometimes just the way he carried himself or his wife. The casting of this, that part worked really well. He and his wife were a good relationship. Her role was really more to set him up for our ways of looking at him and maybe even questioning everything he's doing. And I, I really, really liked that part of this as it was going on. My second viewing in particular, I think I got to pay a lot more of attention to that because I kind of knew what this movie was. So now it was getting into execution. And that part, casting worked really well on this. George C. Scott's got to be right. And he was. <laughs> I, I agree with you totally because I think, again, second viewing makes a difference as far as trying to critique things. Uh, you know, sometimes we do movies. You know, it came just came out. We went to the movies to see it, and let's do it, and let's give a review quick. And you're giving your first thoughts on it. But when you take a chance to sit down and watch it a second time, it gives you that chance to really just kind of analyze how they put it together. Uh, and I think this movie, there was like a tremendous opportunity to fail. I, I think the premise is, is a little questionable at times. And the storyline is a little bit rote as far as, okay, we're going to use these dolphins for this and all of that. So I think it really became critical that the acting performances carried it and that Mike Nichols put together a narrative in a way where it was compelling to go through it. And I think he also made a very wise decision by not making it over long. I think science fiction movies like this, you know, you could easily, even back in the 70s, go to two hours and 10 minutes or something like that. He went 104 minutes. So it's only, you know, what is it, an hour and an hour and 44 minutes. Uh, so it's still 15, 16 minutes short of two hours. And I think that was smart. I think this movie would have been bloated if they had gone longer on that. And I suspect that George C. Scott, my guess, and I don't know, but I understand George C. Scott to be like a very gruff guy in real real life. And I suspect that he looked at this and thought, I don't want to do this crap. <laughs> but then when he when 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 push came to shove, he's a professional. And mm-hmm. I think he portrayed it the way it needed to be portrayed. And he did bring that through. I think I think he did 
come across as a stoic individual. But with that stoicism, he was able to bring through in the way he delivered his lines and his body language. He was able to show that he did have this very, very caring nature for both his wife and for these dolphins. And I think that became critical in in watching this movie and getting to the heart of it. Because if you didn't have that heart, this movie would be, you know, this movie could have been a cartoon. It it could have been so two-dimensional that that it wouldn't have done anything for me. Uh, So I think his performance is largely what does it. Uh, And just, you do have to just kind of accept that's the way dolphins would speak and, and all of that. And I like the fact that they limited their understanding of the language. They, they, you know, had certain words where they couldn't, you know, they wouldn't understand because, you know, how much are you going to teach a dolphin? You know, you got to give it, you know, you got to give it time and have them learn. It's just like a child, you know, you, you can't speak to them in very complex words. This is this dolphin, I believe, is four years old, you know, and, and you're, you're teaching it. So you got to keep it kind of simple. And then there was also that the dolphin didn't understand hypotheticals you know it's either here and now or it's not and that became a critical moment in the movie as well uh which was really really emphasized i thought because late in the movie the dolphin learns not to trust everything that's said to him uh when when they try to get him to place the bomb he understands i don't trust this guy or when they say you know uh Dr. Terrell is on in this area. He knows that's the guy who told me the shark told us the shark was in the tank. I don't trust him. Yeah. And I, yes. I thought, you know, that was you, you see that that growth. I think it's great. Yeah, the literal component of it was great because you got these, you know, they're interviewing the dolphin and, and they're trying to poke holes in this and, you know, trying to be smarter than smart by coming in and like, okay, let's get really into theory right now. And you're asking this like First of all, this is a dolphin that can talk. All right, guys, <laughs> I mean, like, let's 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 own that first. What I loved about it, though, was they were trying to say, you know, can this creature reason or not? What I loved is it proved itself by the fact that when the guy lied to it about the shark and that whole incident happened afterwards, the dolphin was very judgmental. And I really liked that. It was a cool little twist where it's like, sitting here, okay, you guys want, the, does this thing have reasoning abilities and all that? Oh, it sure does. Because it has recognized now a concept that is a human concept of trust, lack of trust, um, lying, things like that, where they're, they're very cut and dry. They haven't been raised in a human, they aren't human, right? So they haven't been raised as a human where they take on those traits and qualities. It was kind of cool to have them have a commentary on some of humans, the humanity's flaws. And I thought that was really kind of a cool little twist in this whole thing. Cause I thought this was going to be one very sweet thing that it was doing in the beginning, like you cartoony. And I'm like, all right, this will be a pleasant little movie about like this talking dolphin. And it, it, I actually appreciated the fact that it went, a lot of places that I didn't think it was going to go, uh, especially when you start realizing there's a financial component to all of this. So we're talking about the ethics of how you're even training this dolphin in captivity and what that goes like, because there's a thing there. There's some points in time where he's trying to get the dolphin talking again, trying to push the dolphin further, start separating him from his mate in order to um, to initiate like, hey, 
you're not behaving. So now I'm going to separate you from your mate and I'm going to torture you to get you to do what I want you to do. And that's what was going on, which is where you start having this moral conundrum of I really like you. You are doing something here that I don't know I agree with. Yes, it's going to likely work. And I saw it that way, but I don't know that I agree with the method. Um, and and I loved that that was a feeling in this. Like I wanted to get in there and scold him. But on top of that, you recognize he's got financial backing from somebody who wants to see financial gain. And then there's also a human's inherent ability that everything that has some form of technology to it or, you know, scientific advancement to it can be weaponized. And mm. seeing seeing it go to that place was one where that, I will say that's a part where I'm poking a few little holes in this one. I'm like, really, we're stra- our first go to on using them as a weapon is we're stabbing bombs to the heads of dolphins. <laughs> it's like right out of Dr. Evil. That's exactly right. I'm like, oh, I mean, minor gripe there. But I will say that was one part where I'm like, OK, this is this part's a little bit hokey, but yet. What what saved it for me was the moral journey that you went on where it's like the the dolphins are reasoning because, I mean, they're they're being put in this horrid situation by these people. And all he wants to do is get back to his papa. (laughs) It It was such an intriguing film from that perspective. Well, it's interesting for me, like when you start giving it more thought of everything that's going on is. To what extent these dolphins would learn? And, you know, sometimes I think there's questions you're not even supposed to ask. It's yeah. like, you know, you just just enjoy the movie. Sit back and enjoy the movie. And I sometimes I think that and I say, you know, don't ask. But but when it gets your mind going and you start thinking about, oh, what about this? What about that? I do think that's a positive. And I started thinking about, well, OK, so now this situation with this dolphin, how does this differ from a child? First of all, a dolphin, I would imagine, and I don't know the science, but they said something about the dolphin's brain being roughly the size of a human's brain, uh, which, you know, would at least lead to the hypothesis that they have the same ability to reason and learn uh, that a human would, at least a capacity for it. Uh, You know, whether that's reality or not, I don't know. But then in my mind, I started going to, well, well, let me compare this to a, a human child. Well, first of all, a human child doesn't reach physical maturity as quickly as the dolphin would. So that's going to delay some of the growth, I would imagine. But the human child in, you know, unless you have an extreme case where something is different, is going to have much, much more in the way of exposure to to, to different sorts of concepts and things a human child's going to be sitting and watching tv you know for, for better or for worse a human child's going to be going out and interacting with other human children a human child is going to be hearing music and doing all sorts of things so then i started wondering okay well what is dr terrell exposing fa to he didn't expose fa to another dolphin until he brought b in so that's in the course of this movie that's not even, you know, this dolphin has reached the, this point of maturity without any other interaction with dolphins. Now, has he exposed the dolphin to music? Has he exposed it to television shows? I, I don't believe he has. The way they show it, it doesn't appear that he has. And it appears, you know, you'd have to think that he is spending pretty much the lion's share of his awake hours with the dolphin, teaching it and exposing it to him. And that's really all the dolphin is going to have uh, or, or his wife. Uh, 
but that that to me then you know i start thinking well what does this dolphin know what has he learned and that would also explain to some extent why the dolphin doesn't know initially not to trust Mm -hmm. that it does take everything as fact when it's presented to it because that's the only thing it's lived with up until this point in its life then you you add in you know from from just from the uh you know, my mind racing on it. You're bringing in B, who grew to maturity in the wild and was, you know, caught somehow and then brought in. Uh, and he, Fa teaches B how to speak, which doesn't seem like it was all that difficult for him to do, which I find to be interesting in itself. But then you got to wonder what her concepts are and what she knows and what she's bringing to him and teaching him. And it just becomes kind of interesting to just try and analyze what the thought process in this dolphin is and again maybe i'm thinking about it too much maybe i'm not but to me it's you know when when my mind starts racing i think that's a positive oh i think so too and i think that's the sign of a good story is when you start taking it beyond the page when you start taking it beyond the film um it's I did find myself saying, geez, I'd like to it. And I'm not going to be able to do this just because I've got so many books that I want to get caught up on. But I was thinking to myself, I would like to read the book um, just to see the original source material of this, to get kind of an idea of of what generated this. Because it's always fun to see how much of the original book they kept in the film. And I'm just not, I know I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> I, I know I'm not either. Yeah. But uh, I, I admit I was intrigued to know a little bit more. I, I'll probably be more inclined to read articles on what was the plot premise of the original book and how much of that did get carried over because I am, I am intrigued by that. Uh, but I got the what, reasoning why George C. Scott's character, Dr. Terrell was trying to keep him the dolphin separated from other dolphins because what he didn't want is he's trying to teach the dolphin to speak English and to get kind of immersed in, in that human aspect. And when you put the stimuli in place of another language, you're now trying to have this dolphin learn two different language paths. And I love that we got to see that in the film. Like once we did get exposed to B, it was done for the purpose of kind of reinvigorating him because he was regressing. And the idea was bring the stimulus in to get him back up and running again. Hopefully, you know, you know, get the energy going. But yet it had a negative impact on the language because now this dolphin's being immersed in communicating with one of its own. And this new stimuli, this new playmate, this new which is now this better way to play and this whole excitement around that. It was taking the alpha away from the language that it was being reinforced on, the language growth. And it was it was really cool to see, because that's I think that's natural. And uh, you know, especially in, in the animal kingdom. And it was such it was such a cool piece. And these, you know, we're right now focusing so much on even the development of Alpha, the dolphin. We aren't talking about where the turns start to happen. Because once you insert a reporter in this whole thing and government and all of that, ooh, this story takes a wild turn that I did not see coming. Yeah, well, you know what, though, I think it's a natural you didn't see it coming because I think you were letting yourself go with the story and and wanting wanting it to be a nice story. (laughs) But I think I think it is a natural progression for a story like this to. uh, you know, to, 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 to go to, you know, what would the, 
you know, what would the government do? What what would be the way that they would try and monetize this or what would be the way that they would try and take this to their own advantage? Uh, and they, they take it to the kind of the extreme negative by having uh, a group decide they're going to use it to assassinate the president. Uh, you know, but I think in a story like this, you know, the stakes have to be high at some point. Uh, otherwise, it is just a nice dolphin story. Uh, I would have been disappointed if it was just a nice dolphin story. I mean, that disappointed. I would have been just kind of like, yeah, it was a pleasant enough film. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you needed that. And then you and what what gave it a little bit of uh, satisfaction was having Fa become the hero of the story. Yeah, you know, have, having him learn and and uh, and and you know learn learn not to trust and then using that and ending ending up you know uh I, I don't i don't know if i want to say how it ends just because i assume that people who are listening to this have not seen this movie for the for the large part and you know maybe they want to so i don't necessarily want to say exactly what happens uh but but you know it's a satisfying ending as far as i'm concerned uh the very very, very ending a very the- dark ending of, yes. It, it, I mean, it's and it's satisfying. I, to, I wasn't me correcting you on that one. It's going along with you. But that was the, the dark. There was a dark twist to this ending. Um, twist might not be the right word, but it, was a, it certainly was a dark ending with where the story went. There's a logic to where it went. Um, it was a dark ending, which considering the fact that I was kicking off thinking this was going to be this sweet little talking dolphin movie. Um, it, I was really surprised with where it went. Yeah, no, I, I I agree as well with that. And, uh, you know, the best, I guess, person to put into the villain role in the movie, for what it's worth, was, uh, what's his name now? I just, I, I lost him. John Daner as Wallingford, who's the one who, who says that there's the shark in the tank. Uh, just because he, he's a guy, he's one of the people who I say is, you know, a that guy actor. When you see him, you're going to recognize him and say, "Okay, I've seen this guy in something before. I don't know what I've seen him in, but I know I've seen him. Uh, For the for the most part, he was in Westerns. He he would play a lot of Western roles. Interesting. I looked him up a little bit and and he started his career as an animator for Disney, uh, which I found to be uh, very interesting. He he worked on. uh, Where is it? Just looking for his. uh, Yeah, he worked on Fantasia and Bambi as an animator, which I, I find to be interesting. Uh, but he, he eventually, you know, went into acting and he, he plays, he plays, he's, he's the kind of actor who, depending on the role he plays would be very easy to like. And is very, very easy to dislike depending on the role that he plays. He he's, a, he's a guy who's kind of larger than life in supporting roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he stands out and you, you need, if if you wanted subtlety, I don't think he's the guy who you hire for it. But if you want somebody who's going to have a level of charisma for either the positive or the negative, I definitely think he's the kind of guy you want in this. And and because of the way he presents himself in that initial conference with the Dolphins, you already dislike him right from the start. And you want to see him get his comeuppance because Fa is like pure sweetness and he is mean to, you know, in, in the way he approaches them. And then, uh, you know, he gets all insulted. You know, I don't remember he says something effective like the dolphin is calling me stupid or something like that. Uh, so I, I I just feel like, you know, he he was a very good choice to cast in the role that he plays in this. And it's a small role, but he really stands out. That whole panel was well cast. 
that was the interview panel, you know, that mm-hmm. they, end up take, they end up taking the turn. Um, it was it was interesting to because I thought that that was a good setup. You think they're one thing and there's actually something and you but it's logical. You take a look at what they were there to do and they were really trying to test and see how much they could use this dolphin for their purposes use these training methods for their purposes, but they did it in such a duplicitous way that looked real. Um, they, they had me, you know, they, they had done the whole illusion thing. Don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> see what we're really doing here. And I thought that was great. Uh, what set it up for me, I think more than anything else was Paul Servino's character. When, when you've got the reporter that's there, he is the smoke and mirrors for us as a viewer. Because he looks like he's the bad guy, and when you're when you're watching what he's doing, you're you're not noticing the shell game that's going on with the other people over you know like oh my gosh there's a whole other layer to this that we don't know about that he was investigating. And that's not saying that Paul Sorvino's character was this pure chase character. He certainly was not. He was far from that. But I liked that he had an ethics to him. And there was a certain portion of him where he's he's trying to do the right thing in this conspiracy that he's uncovering. He when he when he said earlier in the film, very early on after his first visit to the island, he gets on the boat and goes, we're on the same side here. We don't know what that means. George C. Scott's character doesn't know what that means. Mm-hmm. That was you do in the second viewing. You, I, you see that sequence and it means something very, very different on the second viewing. In the first viewing, you're like, uh, I don't care what he's saying. I mean, like, there might be some subtext there. There may be something to what he's saying. But what on what level is he saying he's on the same side here? He means something very, very different than any of us know because he has an information that we don't even have as the viewer at that point, which I thought was until the second viewing. Then then you're on the same page as him. Right. It, yeah. And very, very different in the second viewing because of that. He he seems like he could very easily be sinister. Yes. So and and it and it's a it, it's a different Paul Savino because it's a younger Paul Savino than I'm used to. Mm-hmm. You know I'm I'm used to Paul Savino from Goodfellas, which is almost 20 years later. So it's it's it's, it's a little bit different than what what I I'm used to for that. Uh, I I think you could say a similar thing about Fritz Weaver in this movie. I think there, there's some similarity there because he's he's a guy who you easily see play the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And he he's he's not he's not pure, but he's not evil either in this. So you know it, I like that. And then you know you you get uh, David, who's one of their helpers, who ends up betraying them, uh, and Edward Herman, who doesn't. Uh, Edward Herman, I, I always, I don't know why, but I always remember him from an episode of MASH. Uh, he played a third doctor that came along with Hawkeye and, uh, BJ and he was getting along with them. He was great, you know, joking and all of this. And, and then eventually, uh, he had a nervous breakdown because of all the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the injured people that were coming in. Uh, and, and it was, you know, I don't know why, but that's, st- that stayed with me. So whenever I see him, I think of that because I thought that was a really, you know, top notch performance. Uh, so anyway, uh, w- what I think we get come back to on this, as we go through these people is it really was a well-cast movie. Especially when, when you have people that you, ha- I think the strength of this 
was the fact that you have people where we're almost in the eyes of the dolphin in that we're looking at all these people that are in the film and there's very few of them that you can sit here and say this one was good this one was bad from what your initial impression of them there's you almost question everybody as you're encountering them as where are they morally at in this one or who's on our side um I, this is where I think set pieces were really critical on this film. I wish I had seen this on the big screen, um, because if there's one thing that I think this film did very well, and we haven't really had a chance to talk about it, was this set that they created, the island, um, everything looks very, very beautiful. And it quickly becomes like this, it's like this, almost like this vacation spot that you want to protect. But it's it feels not only like a research station, but a home. Like there's set pieces where these people actually live when they're off duty and, and that type of thing. You get protective. Everything looks very large, but there's an intimacy as you get more and more into the research station of these holding tanks. You know, when they had to confine the two dolphins, it felt very tight. You start feeling for the dolphins in that moment and set pieces helped with that which I thought was really cool. There was this sense of isolation that gave us an ability to relate to Alpha and Beta in those moments that was really, really well done. Um, it did feel like, though, this research station where you could see, I, I could see living there, you know, and and doing research there and, and enjoying the serenity. When everyone came in, they were a foreign body in this home. Everyone that came there then visited was an invader. And you did not know whether the invader that was coming in was somebody that was there for good reasons to protect that we're going to protect the environment or they're going to hurt the environment. And that was something that kept being a repeated theme. It was questioning everybody's motives on the outside with these people that were trying to protect this bubble that they crafted for their research. Um, everyone was poking holes in it. <laughs> and, and I really liked the sense of danger that was coming in. That's where I think starting it off as this sweet little dolphin movie was brilliant because you get to a certain point where when it starts to take a turn, it's when people start, other people start getting introduced and you start taking a look at, Oh, this cool little protected cartoony thing that we were talking about earlier, maybe isn't so safe. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and that's, that was interesting. And that's, that's one of the things, you know, you building on, on that is that takes from just a sci-fi movie of hey what you know what about the premise of dolphins who can talk and turn it into like a political thriller which is a more common genre for that day in yes. the 60s and 70s you know things like the manchurian candidate and uh you know whatever the day of the jackal and other stuff you know like that were were popular movies at the time uh and i think this kind of fits in what I like. One of the things I like about this is it doesn't fall into just one genre. Mm -hmm. it, it has the science fiction. It has the social commentary. It does have an element of satire and it has the the, the element of sweet, sweet animal movie. Uh, you know, it's got all of those things going for it at once, which is very cool. Uh, so and that's, just, that's that makes me enjoy it very much. It pushes some lines, but stays grounded, too. Like, I mean, it's obviously you're you're taking things with the talking dolphin and all that to, you know, you're you're now getting into your science fiction that you're talking about when you're doing that. But they didn't go too far. It stays realistic. 
which was um, something that I really appreciated that it was it was pushing some boundaries and, and going there with it. But the grounded part made it feel like this is something that could really happen. And this like I felt like the cast, I felt like the story um, it's where I applaud, boy, Buck Henry's range. What I saw, I kept like, is it that? Is it? I was the, I was questioning it. It was it that Buck Henry? Because <laughs> when I saw that, I'm like, I don't know him for doing this kind of stuff. And I felt like that's where the script was a success, was the fact that this stayed pretty grounded. Um, and when it did push those limits with the Dolphins and was trying to take things beyond what we know right now, um, things that maybe we've theorized, but they were actually putting them into execution, um, it, it stayed still pretty safe, which made it believable. And you're like, you're not so fantastic that you're not thinking like this was actually happening in the 70s. And I, that made me more protective of the Dolphins, I think, and, and the research that was going on there with the fact that they didn't go super crazy. You know, like we didn't have Alpha getting out and making people coffee and tea and stuff, <laughs> you know, like doing like crazy stuff. Like, you know, like, yeah, he's, he's their chef, too. And <laughs> doing all, I mean, I, it was it stayed pretty grounded in a way that I thought was to the benefit of the film. But I think that was also that's also shown uh, in the fact, you know, I said earlier that it was only 104 minutes that they didn't try and overdo it. Uh, but I think both. Buck Henry and Mike Nichols deserve a certain amount of credit for not letting this become so complex that you're watching it and you're saying, what the hell is going on here? You know, you kind of always felt like you understood where it was going and what was going on, even though you didn't know, as you mentioned already, you didn't always know everybody's motives. Uh, But you kind of, you know, you could still see on the surface where everything was going and felt comfortable watching it and never felt like, okay, you know, now, now's the point where I want to turn this off because it's getting just too ridiculous or confusing. It's they they kept it, as you say, grounded, uh, and and also understandable, which is you know key. That's the one thing about movies like this. Every once in a while, they they get a little too clever for their own good, uh, and they, they try to put little secrets in there. And and when you're watching it, you're so confused by who's motivated to do what, as opposed to. Let me just see, is this person good or bad or, you know, what what are they trying to do uh, that, you know, it starts to get, you know, my head starts to hurt. And I start thinking, you know, ex- except for the fact that I have this innate completest attitude about me, I start thinking I'd like to turn this movie off on certain movies uh, because of that. And this one never gave me that feeling. I intended to watch it in two sittings and I got so pulled into the story that I had watched it in one. Um, it was just timing wise. I started watching it. Figured, oh, I'll watch like the first half of it. And then I'll watch the second half tomorrow was was my original thought process on how I was going to go about this. And I wanted to see the ending. I'm like, OK, I want to see where is this going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I, that's where I think the pacing, to your point, I think was a success in this film because it was well paced. Um, it did the right amount of things early on that built you it, in the beginning. There's this early part where everything's very serene and it's setting things up and it's set a stage and it made a change at the right point in time that I think this film needed a change because it was this serene mm. to your point, kind of cartoony little film in the beginning. It needed to be, you needed to s- establish that environment 
And then when things took a change, it was for me as a viewer that was like, oh, wait a minute. I don't know that I can get up right now and stop watching this. I want to see where this goes. <laughs> and because um, I didn't see it taking the turn that it did because it's layered. It's not just one bad guy. Um, it's there's a lot of people that are coming at this from a lot of different angles. Um, you know, you reference the cast and there, you know, there's people that it's the direct boss of Terrell. It's the reporter that is blackmailing the direct boss of Terrell. And we don't know his whole story. It starts to gradually unfold that he's a lot more than what he seems to be. You know, so I'm referencing him as a reporter. It's not it's a lot more complicated what he is. You know, before it was, he was coming in under this premise of that he's writing this story. Uh, there's more to it than that. Then there was this whole other layer of this panel that comes in that we don't realize they've got a whole other layer. Mm-hmm. And that's where the film, I think, just you're like, oh, I can't turn this off. I want where the hell is going <laughs> and why and who's who's responsible for what. I think we're at the point where we should talk about the score a little bit. Uh, the score is by Georges De La Rue, who I'm not familiar with. Uh, I look at his uh, background. He did this, these, the scores for uh, a little romance. Anne of a Thousand Days, Julia, Agnes of God. Uh, not movies that I would really be familiar with the uh, the, the scores of to speak of. Um, but he did win. Uh, he won three consecutive César Awards, uh, which is a apparently a, a French award for, uh, I guess, kind of their version of the Academy Awards for three of the films that he did. Um I thought, without knowing his background, because I didn't, uh, I thought the score in this was pretty good. I thought it was a little understated, mostly. I didn't think it ever was obtrusive, but I do think there were a couple of points where it came to the fore, uh, where it was more to present a feeling of like adventure. Almost almost a little bit like uh, John Williams' score in Jaws when the orca first sets out to sea. Uh, if you remember that moment, which is one of my favorite score moments in that film. Uh, and I thought it had a little bit of that element to it. And this obviously predates yours, so it's not ripped off from that. But that's the feel it gave me at certain points. Uh, so I, I would give it a thumbs up on the score for this. I thought it was successfully uh, emphasizing certain points in the movie without ever being overly obtrusive. In fact, if anything, being a little understated. Uh, so to me, it's a thumbs up for that. It is a movie that needed sound, but the musical score, I think at certain points, needed to be understated. I couldn't agree with you more in how you're analyzing it, because, you know, obviously we're much more the sounds of alpha and beta have to be at the forefront of all of this. So I think a lot more of the score plays into this when we get into the later parts of the movie and there actually are some adventure sequences in it that are needed. Um, You know, we start having things going on on boats when people are, you know, going to certain places and there's certain adventure sequences that kick in in this. And I think the score starts to ramp up a little bit. Uh, And I thought it was a decent score. I, you know, it wasn't one of those where I'm like sitting here going, wow, I've got to own that and I've got to listen to it over and over again. But, you know, that the purpose of the score is for what does it do for the film? And in some points in time, they'll force a score into a movie just to like, you know, kind of show off with it. And this film, there's certain points where you can't have that. I've, I'm much more, I want to hear Alpha. Um, I mm-hmm. want to hear Alpha saying, I want to hear Alpha sounds. I want to hear Alpha and Beta interact because it's really pivotal to see Alpha's language turns 
And uh, it, the movie made very good use of sound. Um, and that's where sometimes you got to take a look at what is better here. Is it the do you need score here or do you need to focus on sound in a very different way? I if this comes around in the theaters, I want to see it. You know, we, we have a mm-hmm. Cleveland Cinematheque here. And the only reason why is I'd like to see it for the sound. I'd like to see it for the set pieces. I'd love to see this on the big screen because I, the set pieces really did captivate me in this um, in a way that um, surprised me because I've never had the chance to see this on the big screen. I would love to see what it looked like in its intended environment. Interesting. Interesting. I hadn't thought about the possibility of seeing it on the big screen. Uh, I don't know if I would or not, honestly, uh, just because of the uh, <laughs> the the energy expended by going out. <laughs> but uh, but I, I wouldn't mind seeing it on like, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing it on the big screen, certainly. Uh, I don't think you're going to ever get the opportunity, frankly, because I don't think this one is. I don't need that. I, I, I don't think this is a movie where people are. are chomping at the bit to get out to, to see it. Or I, I, I don't even know if it's still available on, you know, if, if, if it's still available on DVD or Blu-ray, or if it's just the uh, initial release that's found. Uh, but I guess we can rate this now, uh, unless you have anything else you want to say no, about it. I, I think we, we, I think we nailed like where we're at on this one. So I, I enjoyed this. I, I definitely did. Um, but it's not, you know, there's, there's no question. It's it's neither a Jaws or a Jaws 4. So I, I was on the fence between Jaws 2 and Jaws 3. You know, which, where where does it land on, on that? And I certainly enjoyed it. There's no question about that. Uh, but I think it's not something where I'm going to be running back to see it on repeated viewing just the same. So I'm going to give it a reluctant high Jaws 3, uh, even though I, I, I'm, I'm like almost wanting to give it a Jaws 2. I'm giving it a low Jaws 2, and the reason being, and I'm like, you and I are in the same place, kind of tossing around between Jaws 2 and 3 on this one. The reason why, I meant what I said. If it came around to the theater, we have Cleveland Cinematheque here, and they'll do, like, director studies and things like that at times. So if it came, and I'm with you, it's not going to, but if it came about in that kind of study, I would go see it in the theater again. I own it, because that was how I ended up getting it to uh for this purpose i just i just decided to buy it for convenience um to be able to um to have it and i don't regret the purchase i've seen it twice now i'll see it again um not, i'm not in a rush to go see it again but i, I know i'll probably watch this again at a, um, some point in time but i'm not in a rush to do it whereas you know when i start getting into the higher parts of jaws 2 and getting the jaws 1 these are movies that like i'm anxious to rewatch. I'm not in that place. I've seen this twice. I'm glad I did. Like the second time through wasn't a trudge, but I'm not like sitting here going, we've got to go watch this. Um, you know, again, I, I'll watch it again, probably because my wife saw bits and pieces of it and she'll want to see it. So I will gladly watch it with her, uh, you know, to watch it again. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a good, I, I'm glad I saw it. Um, it, it's one of those, if I recommend it to somebody, I'd say, Hey, there's an afternoon where you want to see something that's a little bit different. This is one of those films where it's going to be a little off the beaten path. Um, it's, it's a lot better than you might think it's going to be and certainly well worth your time. I, I'd recommend it, but, um, I wouldn't recommend it as like, <laughs> there's a lot of films I'd say, Hey, they're Jaws ones. You got to go watch them right now. It's not in that category. So I'd say low Jaws too just because of the fact that I, I know I would see it in the theater if, if the opportunity presented itself. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we, we landed on a different number for it, but I think our analysis is basically the same. Uh, and if somebody either enjoys this type of movie or is just a movie fan like we are, uh, I would definitely say, yeah, absolutely watch it. It's worthwhile. No question about it. Uh, and I and I think, you know, again, uh, I mentioned earlier as we were talking that I doubt most of our audience has seen this. So, you know, if, if somebody who's listening to this ends up watching it because they hear this and they're curious, let us know what you think. I, mean, I would definitely be curious to know. I would also give you the caveat. You've got to wait till a certain point. There's a point in time in the film where the reporter shows up. Do not turn off the film. If if you're like, eh, this sweet little cartoony, like, dolphin film's not my cup of tea, do not turn off the film until you've at least gotten to that point, because I think that's where the film takes a twist that I think has a larger audience appeal to it. All right, so that's our take on uh, Day of the Dolphin. Um, as Once again, I'm just going to throw out to everybody, if you get uh, the opportunity, sign into our Facebook page. Uh, you know, the more people that are on and the more commentary we get on movies, the more fun it is for me, certainly. And I think it's the more fun it is for our group. When you do sign in, there are two questions you have to answer. And the whole purpose of that is just to make sure you're not, you know, some sort of uh, enemy bot trying to sign in. Uh, so answer them or I'm not going to accept you into the group. But please answer them and, and join in and, and give us your thoughts on, on these movies or other movies. Uh, you know, the. the the show and the webs and the uh, Facebook page are both called Is It Yours? But the reality is we want to talk about all movies, not just yours. So uh, thanks, Sean, for joining me on this one. And thank you for indulging me by watching another movie that I'm throwing out at you that you had no knowledge of beforehand. Uh, you know, I always appreciate that. I think it's fun to do that every so often. I, mean, I really I enjoyed this one because it was I walked in blind. <laughs> this one and i'm glad i saw it it was it was a good one to talk about uh, thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next time bye-bye <laughs>